0: Hello everyone, this is Arian The Air, welcome back to the podcast, glad you're here. Today, got a real treat for you. Really long podcast, longest one yet. Big conversation with someone who's very special. His name is Andrew Taggart. Andrew is the real fucking deal, man. He is a real philosopher after talking to andrew it made me feel like what i do here on the podcast is merely shooting the shit in the realm of philosophy while people like andrew are actually doing the practice of philosophy which is some it's very good it guides me towards a deeper practice here in this world and in this beautiful thing we call philosophy so andrew is a speaker and a writer and um He's a Zen Buddhist, I think he spends a lot of time sitting on his meditation mat, he spends a lot of time philosophizing. He is a mentor to a number of my mentors, which is amazing. And he's so generous and kind and soft and personable and uh, just wonderful person. It was just such a pleasure to be able to spend so much time with him in dialogue and Um, It was really fun. And so this conversation starts uh, for me at 6.30 a.m. And so I thought it was fitting to kind of, uh, you know, he wakes up very early. He lives in Albuquerque. And so I thought it was fitting that I would kind of disrupt my normal cycle to to be on a call with Andrew, like a sunriser. And... It definitely takes all of my bandwidth to... Like, I literally have to listen back to this a number of times to fully grasp a number of the things that Andrew's talking about. And he's incredibly articulate, and it's amazing, amazing conversation. So I want to gift this to you. If you feel inclined to support with your gifts of encouragement or with wrestling the algorithm for me or even a gift in the form of monetary currency you can do all of that paypal.me slash airy in the air really appreciate that Andrew is an expert on the gift economy and that's not something that we dove into today because we talked about humanism physicalism and secularism these are very very interesting topics and essentially they are the things that we have lost in our way of thinking so I think that this this conversation really sparked a number of things in me that I think help guide me towards understanding where we went wrong and what it might look like for us to be a more wholesome civilization for me to be a more wholesome person and a more sovereign person and so we really appreciate it I love Andrew so much thank you Andrew and guys. Without further ado, buckle your seatbelts for this one. It's going to be a long haul, buddy. Here's my conversation with Mr. Andrew Taggart. Andrew, hi, thanks so much for being here.
1: It's wonderful to be here, Ari.
0: Okay, so today I think we're gonna dive deep on the nebulous idea and the the Hydra that is the things that we've lost, the things that we the ways in which we conceptualize the world that limit our experience that pinhole our realities um and before we started recording you were mentioning a number of them and so yeah i would love to just uh let's dive in here we can we can go one at a time we can start with a let's let's start with a, a broader overview let's zoom out and then we can kind of uh, zoom in on the Mandelbrot in a number of different ways today.
2: Beautiful. I'm ready.
0: Okay, so there were three things that we were talking about here um, before we started recording. And there were things like materialism, that the physical world is all that actually exists, that uh, we were also talking about a scarcity of time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and we were talking about mentalism. Is that the, was that the term that, that consciousness arises from neurology?
1: Yeah, we're close. We're close. Um, okay. So uh, the first view in philosophy of mind is called physicalism or materialism. Mm-hmm. Most basically it states that um, what exists is material or physical. And that is all that exists. This is a this
0: is a um, position that I occupied for many years.
1: <laughs> it's it's a very common position, and it will come downstream today, I think, to some implications. But one of which is a crippling or paralyzing fear of death that many people have.
2: Yeah? Uh huh.
1: So we'll see how that arises. I think it's, 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 it's not that hard to see. But so in philosophy of mind, the suggestion is that physical arrangements of the brain or various neural processes, either A are identical with consciousness or B constitute or generate consciousness. I'm less interested in the view per se that I am and the implications on our lives
3: of these views.
1: So we can just bear in mind that when we start to think that uh, there's just matter, just matter and energy, there's there's just neurological processes. And that's all there is to the story. We're on materialist grounds. We're on physicalist grounds. So that's, that's the first one. The second one, I think, and they're all related actually, in in very interesting ways, would be called humanism, which is the view according to which human beings are the measure of all things. And as you nicely put it, we need to think about what was lost in order to make humanism possible. Uh, For certain theorists, such as the late Ramon Panikar, what was lost was an idea of the cosmos, which was a well-ordered, beautiful structure in which human beings found themselves, let's say up until the end of the medieval period, right? So most, most cultures have had some cosmology as well as a cosmogony. Uh, that is a, 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 a world in which they fit or a life world in which they fit as well as a story of how it came into being. But the, the key part here is that a cosmos is that which is suitable for human life, that in which we find ourselves. What was also well, forgotten or lost is any idea of divinity. And You can start to hear perturbations of the loss of divinity, at least by the end of the 19th century. So the consequence is that we're left with humanism, which more or less holds that what I care about is what other people think and feel about me. I care about fundamental human concerns, human projects. You can see how this makes possible entrepreneurship, startups, social impact theories, and so forth. It makes possible Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and other social social media platforms. Because what we care about is what other people think about us. It's, a, it's an unfolding, insular, self-enclosed human drama. Mm-hmm. that's the second that's the second thing we spoke about and the third one was secularism And i think the easiest way to define secularism would be to say that the only reality that exists is a temporal reality think of ecclesiastes the, the, the author there is very concerned with the fact that everything comes and goes everything continues to come and go so, in, under secular conditions, there's no room for anything but the temporal world, and therefore any notions of transcendence or an afterlife or mm. incarnation or rebirth, just to take the obvious position. And,
0: and in, in that, in, I just want to clarify temporal as is, it's like it's temporary or time
1: bound? Time I mean, bound. Yes, time. time bound. Exactly. It is subject to clock time, subject to chronos.
0: Uh-huh, Kronos,
1: got it. So our conversation today will last about an hour. Is that, is that the presupposition is that the conversation is time-bound. Mm-hmm. We, we might say, if we were not being secular, that the greatest things in life are not time-bound. They appear to be eternal and perhaps are eternal. But that is precisely what's ruled out by secularism that might be nothing more than illusion or so-called flow state, but it's not actually seen at the metaphysical level as, as something that is real. Yeah. So put these together and you have a, a, you have a very nice description of at least a good set of aspects of the modern world, namely that everything is physical or material, that the, the drama that's unfolding is a human drama be it more narcissistically understood or more collectively narcissistically understood and it all unfolds in time and is therefore subject to the ravages of time Mm. consequently we can start to to see how people talk about how life is limited and one has to lift up in some fashion another they will talk about how, what they can do on behalf of other human beings. And, and so climate change has been very scary for people because they worry about the end of Homo sapiens, not mm-hmm. necessarily the end of the biosphere or the end of the cosmos. And I think most of all, what you begin to see is that this is, a, this is an extraordinarily strong set of the conditions, which is going to give rise to existential anxiety when it comes to the death of the body. Because it appears to be also the death of or the end of consciousness.
2: So, hmm.
1: yeah. So
0: it seems quite obvious what when we when we break it down like this into these three things, it seems pretty obvious as to. How pinholing ourselves into these one, into these, like, um, these are cul de sacs. These are cognitive cul de sacs, it seems,
2: mm-hmm.
0: that limit our stories of ourselves. And I think the state of the world that we are talking about is a, state in which the stories are exceedingly sad, small, um, limiting,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: there's also certain, there's like, I can also see the parts of us that we need these things. Like, like as a professional action sports athlete like the physicalism like the like the incredibly powerful need to be present with the physical reality of my soft body and moving quickly over sharp rocks
2: mm-hmm.
0: is so real the secularism that we see as a I've seen it so much as a, in my own life and in my own generation, it seems, the secularism that I have seen is a rejection of control through religion. Right. And this is, this is the, this is the bathwater that carried with it a beautiful baby out the window. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And the human, the humanism, I see as just uh, like it's us getting lost in our stories. It's like we just get lost in them. Like they just end up, it's like some kind of thing that swallows up everything else. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's, as we, I guess I have a desire as we talk about these things to not only identify what it is about this that is the wrong way to go as like where these stories actually become limiting and where they become too large for the the higher reality where these stories actually become a cul-de-sac and don't allow us to keep the inquiry going and also what the what a more sustainable view of physicalism is like how do we hold that like how do we hold the the physical reality and how do we hold the human reality and how do we hold the connection to the cosmos
1: Mm -hmm. yeah let's start with a very simple but i think very direct statement namely that there are certain views or positions that curtail fundamentally our our ability to inquire any more deeply so I'll, I'll i'll make it very personal here and this is going to be a tragic a tragic story in the proper sense my eldest sister so i, I should back up a little bit um, okay i i i i am first schooled in greek philosophy philosophy of socrates and plato and aristotle the stoics and others so they did have a cosmos then, but by and large, what we've come to seeing from the Greeks is that they were concerned, roughly speaking, with how one lives in this world. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's call that basically secular just, just for the moment. Just, just for the moment. We could, we could open it up a bit, but let's say that's more or less what I inherited as I was philosophizing up and through 2013 and 2014. Now, my eldest sister uh, ended up being quite sick in, at the end of 2013, and she was diagnosed with uh, this indeterminate cancer, but basically a stage four. So listeners might not know that that's, that's the worst stage possible. So you ha- she ended up having 12 more weeks to live before the body perished. So this is obviously very much, a psychological story. That's a story about a family grieving over the loss, the, the, the unfortunate and unforeseeable loss of a daughter and a sister. Mm. But the part that's important for our conversation today is that for me, what I realized was that, to use your word, I was limiting myself in terms of the questions I was asking. And it wasn't just that I was doing it to myself. It was that I was beholden to a worldview that was limiting the extent to which I would even get any inquiry into certain matters off the ground. Ludwig Wittgenstein famously wrote, a picture held us captive. And I felt captive by picture. So I hadn't asked, for example, whether secularism was fundamentally true. I had assumed that it was fundamentally true. I had assumed that the temporal, that is whatever is time bound, is precisely what human beings are subject to. I had assumed that the day was a proper measure of my experience. I had assumed that human life was the proper measure of the totality of my experience. I had assumed away all the important what in philosophy are called metaphysical questions, questions about the nature of reality. Mm-hmm. So the first point I could make that about each and every viewer position we bring forward. But the first thing I really want to say is that there has to be some introduction of doubt, some introduction of the discrepancy in this entire worldview in order for there to be genuine questioning.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What, I, what I've discovered about, People living today is that, if I may put this a little bit too uh, strongly, we lack depth overall because we lack the ability to question in many ways the frames and the worldview that we are involved in.
0: yeah, if I were to piggyback that, I would almost say that we lack depth because we lack doubt. Yes, exactly, perfect,
1: yes, and, and by doubt here I, i'm I'm referring to What design would call great doubt. It's not just the doubt. I wonder whether the sandwich will be tasty (laughs) Or I wonder whether I wonder whether this paragraph Experience will be lovely. No, I mean doubt having to do with what Paul Tillich called matters of ultimate concern Uh So we're lacking doubt when it comes to matters of ultimate concern. We've spirited away those questions as a consequence, we're kind of left with default positions that I would argue are inherently unsatisfactory. So we can, we can look at the ways in which pathology arises in journey. We can look at various forms of depression and feelings of being overwhelmed and forms of anxiety just as a litmus test to see how well we're doing. If we were to give ourselves a scorecard, the answer, you know, the, the, the result would be that we're not doing very well. Mm-hmm. So there need to be various ways of providing, as you, as you nicely put it, right, the, 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 the sense of doubt. And the sense mm-hmm. of doubt is what opens us up to the possibility of inquiring in the first place. This is to say nothing yet about an alternative. It's just to say that there needs to be a genuine crack in one's being. A a disruption. A disruption. I call it an an existential opening. Mm. It's not the same as a crisis. It's It's the opening that occurs when the questions begin to reflect back on the question. Who am I? Why am I here? What is real? What is ultimate? What is all this about? What is the nature of a good life? What is the cosmos? Is there God, and so forth? Mm, the good stuff. Yeah, it's well, it's the stuff that makes life fundamentally worth living.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a delineation that I'm, my mind is trying to make here between the crisis and the disruption, because mm-hmm. it seems like we go through, like, uh, humanity in general goes through myriad crises without actually getting the disruption. Like we seem to avoid it using our humanism, our physicalism and our secularism.
1: Yes, yes, and I'm sure there are other ways of avoiding it too. Consider, consider the COVID-19 pandemic, I mean, that's, that's absolutely right. We've had a crisis or what some today would call a meta-crisis in the midst of a meta-crisis, uh, an interlocking set of crises uh, pointing to the fragility of various institutions. To which we belong only half-heartedly. So you would think that the crisis would be a sufficient condition for disruption, but it hasn't been. you notice that the ways in which people by and large are thinking and speaking, the ways in which they're conducting themselves have not really changed. For example, uh, People really care around 4th of July and around, um, pardon me, American people tend to care around 4th of July and around April time about basically hedonic pursuits, the ability ability to be free to pursue pleasure. Mm -hmm. But you can only get hedonism, I'm arguing, as one particular manifestation or consequence of this tripartite structure we're talking about. I care about hedonism because life is life is finite mm-hmm. and because there's nothing higher to live for. So I might as well default to some form of a nice experience or pleasant experience or non-ordinary experience, but it's, it's all under the aegis of a certain hedonism. You know, I felt very disappointed with the American people because it, it felt as if we can feel disappointment at various levels, geopolitical, political, economic, and so forth. But if we just focus for a moment on individuals, it seemed as though there was no no restraint to conduct. There's no restraint to conduct because there's there's no common vision. There's no higher good. Uh There's nothing for the sake of which all of us would live. So we can begin to notice just the various ways in which physicalism, Secularism and humanism are revealing to us forms of suffering and the inability to actually organize in ways that allow us to fulfill some notion of the common good. Yeah, it's it's quite it's actually quite disturbing from this point of view,
0: especially amidst the existential cataclysm. Yes, of course, certainly <laughs> makes it all a bit scarier, all, all a bit sadder. And as you, so much of what you're talking about, I take personal offense. Um, you have me way too pegged already, Andrew. And so much, <laughs> there's just <laughs> so, you know, like I would love to posture that the meta crisis is outside of me. But in recent weeks, it has become abundantly clear that the meta crisis is actually between my ears. Yes and the way that I operate in my relationships and my in just the way that my mind works or is conditioned to work is deeply flawed and is unsustainable. I have for so long you know w- the first question I think you asked me this morning was was why i why do I go around the world jumping off of cliffs and flying over mountains and yeah, yeah. balancing wobbly ropes and uh you know that's a question that i've had uh you know i used to just i i would have 12 months ago said because it's awesome and um in recent months i've had to dig down into my own motivations and history childhood adolescence um and in general i think that what you are explaining in my peer group, I would almost describe as FOMO Mm -hmm. and it's a general FOMO. Mm -hmm. It's a general, it's a general fear of missing out. And, you know, yesterday, one of my good friends asked me why it is that we're afraid of death, Mm -hmm. which is just a huge freaking question. And, Mm -hmm. and I think that in, you know, from a pretty broad and rough, explanation like i kind of told him fomo like everything that we know is here in existence and we don't want to miss out on that so we don't want to die
1: yeah well and we i can only say we we have to remind ourselves that we we continue to presume that the death of the physical body entails the end of conscious life. Yeah. And so you have, to, you have to presume that in order to amp, uh, amp up fear of death.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I, I guess the question I would ask you is, is that inherent? And in, I, I feel like that's inherent in all of our stories. Like we don't, like, I would guess that you have spent Thousands of hours to come to some kind of realization that is anything other than your physical experience being the most powerful, salient, yeah. real thing mm-hmm. in life.
1: You know yes. exactly. Certainly. So there, I think. It's, I grew up in a sports family as well. My my sisters I had basketball coach at a WNBA. Mm-hmm. Basketball team. <laughs> that's So, awesome. I'm, so I'm, <laughs> that's awesome. He said, yeah, this is so I'm, 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 I'm kind of familiar with maybe not extreme sports, but I'm certainly familiar with sports culture broadly. And I think there are two reasons why you and your friend are talking about this. But the, the first is what we default to, and I call it secular spirituality. So secular spirituality holds that you begin to realize, you and your friend begin to realize that ordinary life is insufficient. Right? You, you don't want to just get a job and have children and live in a nice house somewhere. You might want that at some point, but that would be a kind of bourgeois story.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So let's, let's say that's not sufficient. You realize that that would be what we call flat and, and dull. Flatlanders. Now, yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. That's a little we'll term. Flatlanders for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but there is no countenancing of the possibility, of this, but any countenancing of the possibility of there could be a, a form of genuine transcendence. I leave that undefined for now, is out of the picture at the at the outset. So you occupy a no man's land between, so to speak, the south territory of flatland and the north territory of transcendence. That mm-hmm. middle that middle land is what a lot of people are occupying today, mm-hmm. and I would say it usually defaults to experientialism. So experientialism would hold <laughs> that what really counts as having non-ordinary, let's call them peak experiences. Yeah. Yeah? That's something that Sam Harris has spoken about. So notice what's happening. It's just, it's just an experience that's quasi-transcendent but does not leave the temporal world. And it comes and goes, right? So that's where you get rushes or highs or um, those, those kinds of pinnacles. But it's, it's, it's transient in nature. So it gets, so the process gets repeated over and over again.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Let's consider the, I'll come to FOMO in a moment, but let's consider the, the marvelous case since I'm a rock climber of, of, um, Oh, what's his name now? Oh, Alex honold right. Mm-hmm. In, the, in, the, in, the, in the blockbuster hit about free soloing. Mm-hmm. List, listeners might not know that free soloing is a form of climbing that involves using you no know, rope. And as Tommy Caldwell, one of his friends puts it, put it, um, if you succeed, it's like winning gold in the Olympics. If you fail, you die. <laughs> so that's, 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 a, that's very important. You're not using ropes. You're not close to the ground. Free soloing is, quote, the purest form of climbing.
3: Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: So at the at, after he free solos in Yosemite in a very beautiful way, He's immediately asked at the top because it's all been found, how was it? He says, That was delightful. In <laughs> classic Alex Honnold uh, understatement. But notice what he experienced. He experienced something that was like a peak experience. Mm-hmm. And then when he's asked, what are you going to do the rest of the day? He says, Well, I'm probably going to hike down, I'm paraphrasing, I'm going to hike down to the other side, and then I'm going to go back and do fingerboard, which is a way of strengthening your fingers for climbing. That's he had the experience. It came, it perished. And he knew nothing else. So that is what I'm calling experientialism. it's a form of, it's a sort of a former genre of secular spirituality. You can Mm. see that it's just, and I'm not trying to say you, one can see that this is insufficient. Most religions, most mystical traditions have suggested that there's the possibility of abiding happiness or abiding peace, that which does not come and go, that which is not subject to the ravages of time. Zen, for example, suggests that there is satori or kensho, which refers to enlightenment or liberation, and it holds that there is a fundamentally different way, fundamentally different way of being in the world that is no longer subject to uh, dukkha or suffering. It's no longer, therefore, subject to what we're describing here: grasping, uh, clinging, uh, the the coming and going. of experiences. And the craving. The craving, yes. It's also called tanha, craving or clinging. Uh So so, so, so that's the first point to make here. And the second point, apropos FOMO, is that there's only the fear of missing out if it's the case that A, other people are doing the sorts of things that you wish you were doing, and B, once again, there is some opportunity cost in terms of time. Time is finite. It's it, it's it's obviously paired with experientialism. I fear that I'm missing out on having an experience and during during the length of my finite time on Earth when if I don't have this experience, it might not come back. It's a very strange, very strange thing indeed.
0: It's so real though. So real.
1: I'm sure it's very real. It's, it's what most people are. What we're just trying to do is flesh out to a slightly, slightly or much higher order of thought
2: Mm
1: -hmm. what's actually happening today. So so remember that as Hegel said, philosophy is its time raised to conception. So philosophy begins at a certain, it begins in the the place where it finds itself, but then it it climbs the ladder up a few rings and looks around and begins to try to understand what this world is about. Yeah. Because otherwise, we get caught, it's a bit like meditation in a sense, but otherwise, we get caught in the presumptions, the presuppositions, the default settings provided to us. Mm-hmm. So you might say that philosophy, if I may put it somewhat jazzily, is a kind of liberation insofar as it, it enables us to get a view of what otherwise was taken for granted, passed over and above all, lived out. Philosophy brings into question what we had otherwise been taking for granted over and over again.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: For thousands of years, generationally.
1: Yes, it, it, yeah, it depends on the particular question
3: being posed, but yes.
1: Not with a view to blowing up the whole thing, it should be said, not with a view to simply deconstructing the edifice, but with a view to actually discovering the truth on, mm-hmm. the, on, the, on the understanding that discovering the truth of things actually gives rise to a kind of peace or, or goodness. When you understand the truth of yourself, you understand, you have some kind of insight about yourself to make it very simple you notice that there's an epiphenomenon of goodness. You, you, you start to feel peacefulness. You start to feel release. So what's beautiful about philosophy is it's not contrary to popular opinion, what destroys and destroys and blows up. It's rather what seeks to understand at the most basic possible level with the understanding, actually bringing about a kind of peace mm-hmm. or happiness or whatever word you wish to put in there.
3: It's not peaceful to to live
1: if you think that this is necessarily, indubitably, the only world and time in which to live. That is a that is a that is a prison cell.
0: Mm-hmm. That's the rat race. That's the maze.
1: Yes, yes. We haven't even gotten into the what, what you can think of. This as a little bit like parameters of a game. Just just and start to see the three things I talked about before Mm -hmm. and see how you can start to press out different games, different Mm -hmm. micro games, rat race. So you could look at the business world. So some conversation partners have told me that life is a competition as such. The point is to be a winner, not a loser. Mm -hmm. That's well, it's not strictly speaking true, but someone can actually live his or her life that way.
0: Absolutely. Mm -hmm.
1: It's it's bizarre because there's no notion of absolute winning. It's only winning relative to the defeat of other opponents.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Again, the, the the you you can only get that view off the ground if, for example, you think that humanism is necessarily true. <laughs> You're competing against other human beings. Mm-hmm. And you presume that that's the most important thing. And of course, if you think that fine, time is finite owing oh, to secularism, then you think you, you would do well to outcompete your opponents with a view to temporarily winning because this is all there is for you in terms of human life.
0: Yeah, and as you lay out the ground rules for yeah. these the the bounding ideas for these games that come up, it becomes more obvious as to how we got to where we are as far as the speed and tenacity of the vehicle driving towards the myriad cliffs. Mm -hmm. that we look at. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you're the three things that you laid out. Really. We could spend a a long time in these because they are, it's like the humanism is the social. The Mm -hmm. physical is like the, it's exactly that it's what is concrete. And -hmm. then the secular is the divine. It's like the.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. We haven't even begun to discuss platforms like Instagram, how do we get around to the idea that vanity became so important today? There has to be. So let's set aside the very sophisticated views of physicalism as they are expounded upon in philosophy of mind or in academic philosophical journals. Let's just look very downstream. Uh, A beautiful woman comes to think that what matters most is transient physical beauty. Mm -hmm. So she comes to, to use it, I invite them, the Advaita Vandata language to identify with the body. I am the physical body. I am mm. numerically identical to the physical body. I'm nothing other than the physical body. No, it's not actually true. If she began to investigate more fully, it, it, it would, that wouldn't really hold up under scrutiny. But that's not what she's up to. She's up to posting Instagram photos of herself in certain, in, 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 in certain situations and of um, a certain kind of confessional mode of commentary on the photo. Mm-hmm. So all this is going to be, I am the beloved body. I am the admired body. But she knows no other. It's, this is not criticism. i, I As a Buddhist, I, I, I very much believe in loving kindness. Furthermore, I, I think that she's suffering unbeknownst to herself, yeah. but she's suffering because she doesn't really know that I'm the body is, is a certain kind of straitjacket. It is, it is, I like your word limiting her in terms of what she thinks about, how she feels, how she, how she goes about the day, how she interacts with the people, what those interactions have as their point or purpose. <clears throat> it's a complete, uh, a cloud or miasma.
0: I, too, tried my best to understand these social phenomenon through the lens of the suffering that they actually cause. These are mental cul-de-sacs that lead us pacing around like Paranoid people who pace around. Uh They lead our world to look like it is in our every institution that exists crumbling under the weight of the stories that have created it. Uh And the beautiful
3: woman who is
0: identifying with her vanity is no different. That is something that as you put it is transient because mm-hmm. she will see in her old age that that was something that she didn't want to identify with because as she becomes old and wrinkly, she doesn't want to identify with old and wrinkly.
3: Yes.
1: and I, I, I want to make plain that I just singled out one example I could have singled out the person who fetishizes van life, for example. That is, I am the body, and it it is also, I am the experientialist. Yes, And and, and you, dear uh, viewer, should be envious of the life that's being portrayed herein. Uh, But it could also be the, just sort of clear we have different cases in front of us, it could also be the ones living in Silicon Valley who, who wish for the physical body to live indefinitely long. Mm-hmm. I think that they're called immortalists. <clears throat> Immortalism, once again, only takes off if it's the case that we presuppose physicalism and secularism. There's such, or if you prefer, you can think about our healthcare industry. It's American healthcare industry. It's very much oriented toward uh, spending a lot of money and resources. Uh, I'm not not sure I have a direct quote here, but on the last days of of sentient life. Why? Why do we care so much about the perdurance of the physical body? Why can't we seem to let go of it? And no, I'm not talking about, quote, killing grandma. (laughs) I just... I, I don't want grandma to be killed, but, uh, I do wonder why we can't seem to let go of the physical body. Why are there no rituals surrounding death? anymore? Mm-hmm. Are very few. You see what I mean? These are, these are very pernicious views. They're very insidious views. They sink very deeply into our beings such that we come to take them for granted mm-hmm. and they come to appear as if they must be true. Mm-hmm. I mean, most if, if a secular humanist we're speaking right now, or scientific materialist, he think what I'm saying is kind of crazy. I haven't even put forward any alternative views yet. Mm-hmm. All I'm beginning to suggest is something very clear, namely that look downstream, stop looking upstream, look downstream, and see what culture is like.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's a very interesting point you make there, especially with, um, what's the term, palliative care.
2: hmm
0: yes. How we, and I would say this is a, a Western thing. I don't necessarily think this is specific to America that as grandma gets older and older and gets closer and closer, we grasp and cling
3: and and it looks like um
0: you know it looks like exactly that and maybe you've been hearing my eight and a half year old great dane asleep in my bed next to me and that is something that's you know it's like not even a you don't even think about it when she's three when she approaches nine years old, yes. you're like, you know, and when she was a puppy, I was like, oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be one of those pet owners who hmm. spends 8,000 bucks to, to get 90 more days of dog life. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, and then at eight and a half years old, I'm like, we, I need to start saving my money. <laughs>
1: i <laughs> well, notice what's happened too. I'm, I'm 41 years old. I think here, are uh, younger than I, mm-hmm. and I had a child, I had a childhood pet. <clears throat> so we should try to remember what it was like, or, or for those who are, if those are a bit older, they should try to remember what it's like. If those who are younger, they should try to imagine what it was like to have pets mm-hmm. uh, sometime before we didn't have the panoply of veterinary services that are now a la carte and available but again, we should ask ourselves, how do those services become available? I don't mean from a technical point of view. I mean from a cultural point of view. Mm-hmm. And, and, and why are we having such a hard time letting go of other sentient beings in our lives? Why are we willing to spend so much money? I'm not suggesting, I'm being agnostic here. I'm not saying that we should or should not mm-hmm. spend money on our, on, on our, on our pets. No. I'm sure there's a good case to be made for loving and caring for other sentient beings in the way we would human beings. Yeah. But I'm just looking at, as you nicely put it, the, the final six months or a year or three months or one month of this being's life. Why can't we seem to let go? That is another, it's a question of metaphysics. Once again, will you presuppose that when your dog perishes, that will be the end of it. <clears throat> I'll give you another example, just so that we're clear. Uh, 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 a man I speak with in Argentina has a, a father who I presume is his 60s or so. And his mother is a very healthy woman. She's, in, she's 97 years old. Recently, she broke two hips just before COVID hit in Argentina. Uh, and it just turns out that she's still healing very well. And I heard that the father was relieved and he had been very worried about her. Well, understandably so, from one point of view. We, we, we ought to care about people in our lives. There is room for love. Yet, he's he, not understandably so is the fact that his worry, concern, and anxiety must be an excess of what is understandable in this situation. <laughs> After all, his his mother's 97 years old. Why so much worry? Why so much anxiety? Why so much dis-ease, to use a Buddhist term? That is what we can't explain to ourselves, but we've we've bracketed it from our own considerations Mm -hmm. because we've come to presume that that's, quote, just the way things are now. They're not. This is a very new phenomenon. Very new indeed.
0: The phenomenon of being so neurotically afraid of death
1: yes and and by and by extension i very afraid that others around us will die before us and that we'll be left alone be left alone to put in existentialist terms we'll be left alone in a cold universe yep yep
0: well there's a couple things here yeah one is that what what's coming up for me. My grandmother died in November, and um, what it's bringing up my conversations with her, as she was afraid of death. Wow. Oh. And the other thing is what I'm kind of coining as my worldview whiplash, as I've read Charles Eisenstein's Sacred okay. Economics. Okay. And the that for me
3: it. it almost
0: illustrates this this existential angst that we are are living in a world shaped by this existential angst, this feeling that the world is coming after us, that we live in a cold universe that we don't want to be left alone in. Um, I think that, you know, as I look at these things it seems like our systems are set up to make us feel exactly that way and our stories that we have to harbor ourselves from those institutions are paper thin Mm -hmm. tissue paper thin if not completely non-existent we burnt them as we burnt them and we thought we would get some kind of heat from burning down the idea of god but we actually it just kind of popped and crackled and fizzled and is now just totally ash and gone. and doesn't really do anything for us. So, mm-hmm. um, but as my, as my grandmother was getting old, she died last uh, November and she was certainly the closest grandparent I ever had. And in, The end, I was about to leave to go to Mexico for two weeks on a big trip to film and fly and bike. And um, she was in a bad way. And so I went and visited her. And she was afraid. She was so afraid to die. And she had been praying. And so I asked her what she had been praying for. And she said she had been praying for healing. Hmm. And I asked her if she had considered instead praying for peace and it there was a moment where she there was a there was a moment where she relented and she said yes i need peace i need to pray for peace and I guess that's like, that's another way to put this giant inquiry is like, why don't we have peace? Why are we so, so far from peace mm-hmm. in these things where we used to have peace
1: around? Mm-hmm. I'm just, I won't expect you or your listeners to accept what I'm about to say, but I'll put forward um, what i what my experience, my what my meditation experience is pointing me toward. This would be called a non-dual picture, a non-dual view. It's what's shared by a number of Eastern traditions, which is various forms of Buddhism, and Advaita Vedanta. It's some would say it's also shared by the mystical branches of Western religions, such as Christian mysticism, Kabbalah, mm-hmm. you know, Sufism, and so on. So, let, rather than make it very theoretical, let's instead just imagine that there is a, sing- a reality, you, I'm borrowing this metaphor from the thinker Bernardo Castro, is a single membrane. So everything that is, is a
3: single membrane.
1: Now, everything, everything you could possibly think of, conceive of, imagine, so on. If we want, we can call that consciousness of capital C or universal consciousness. But if that sounds a little bit too woo for some of your listeners, then you can just drop that language. You can just call it capital R reality. Reality is a membrane. So far, so good. A remembering? Oh, reality is a membrane. Membrane. Ah, membrane. Uh, (laughs) Slightly different. Uh (laughs) But remembering will be involved, perhaps. (laughs) So okay, just, a membrane. A, a membrane, yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now let's let's imagine that for reasons we don't know, that membrane is disposed to vibrate in various and sundry ways. And let's say that it vibrates in all these different ways, with the result that certain parts of it are a bit like pleats or folds, or they're called protrusion, protrusions. Uh-huh. parts of the parts of the single cloth start to uh, bunch up in certain ways mm-hmm. now obviously that that particular shape or, or what buddhists would call form is itself nothing but the membrane but we could imagine that all over this infinitely large membrane we're starting to get different kinds of pleats and folds and Bends and torsions and so forth. Well, these would be what we'd ordinarily call trees and rocks in the universe, depending on the kind of thing that's happening, but most especially, let's say, for our purposes, human beings. So, a human being is just a particular uh, pleat, if you will, or fold or pinch in this universal membrane. And then we'd have to talk about what happens. What happens is that we come to forget that we ourselves are identical with this single reality. And we come to think and believe and feel that we are separate selves or or self-enclosed egos. From the point of view of the ego, it comes to seem as if everything else is separate from me and other than me, trees and rocks and houses and rooms and portraits and books and everything else so far. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I look around, I identifying myself as the ego, look around and begin to see that everything else is different for me other than me, separate from me. Mm-hmm. I can now begin to imagine a, a so-called separate cold universe. I now come to think of all other sentient life as being separate and ontologically different from me. I am in some respect alone and enclosed in this bag of skin or so I believe. Mm -hmm. but this has involved, from a non-dualist point of view, a form of forgetting, a form of deep forgetting. Uh I've forgotten that actually what I am fundamentally is the membrane, or if you prefer to change a metaphor, I'm the ocean of being. Whatever a metaphor you like. I am a ripple of water on the ocean of being.
0: And the, the one thing I wanted to add to that was the, the, the manifestation of God as a, Separate entity that looks like a human man.
1: Yeah, that's the unfortunate, the, the unfortunate neo uh, neo atheist or new atheist critique of of Western religion is based on a kind of set of caricatures or straw, straw men. Uh-huh. So yes, you first begin by literalizing religion, then you begin by anthemizing God. Mm, literalizing. Yes. And you suggest that God must be beyond the world on the picture I'm providing. If you want to be poetic or if you want to be Christian, you can call the single reality God. Mm -hmm. That's fine. And then you would call the universe a certain vibratory pattern of the nature of God. And then you would call human beings just in every other concrete form, just pleats, folds, or pinches, or whatever you want to say there, metaphorically speaking. But, but that would be to say that uh, <laughs> that would be to say that I fundamentally am the nature of God. So, or as Nisargadatta says in his book, "I am that, I am that." Now, someone might say, "Okay, I don't necessarily buy this metaphysic," and understandably so. Usually, these things are realized through exp- direct experience, and various meditative practices. So, I'm not asking people to buy it, but I am saying the following if you actually came to, to feel in your very heart and your direct experience that it was true, then there would be no fear of death. Mm. And there would be no loss. There would be no meaning crisis to use John Harvey's language, yeah. I'd argue. The few, it's certainly that what's nice. is The corollaries are very nice. We shouldn't believe things because of the corollaries or implications, but we should at least give a view, an airing if it's the case that it actually provides benefits to the way we actually live. So how wonderful would it be not to fear death? How wonderful would it be to think that all sentient beings are actually, so to speak, cut from the same cloth and therefore fundamentally no different from me? How nice would it be to be able to perceive a tree and to start to perceive it mystically, that is, I and the tree am one. Something that poets have written wonderfully about at times. All right. How wonderful would it be to let go of the need to have certain experiences? To, uh, to fetishize the physical body? Uh, could one let go of the belief and feeling that time is finite? One could, and so on and so forth. And, and so your grandmother, to come back to her, would, would find peace just in case she was able to actually have some insight into how her physical body will dissolve on this understanding. And the energy, so to speak, will be returned to the single membrane, mm-hmm. the single cloth of reality, the single ocean of being. Now it won't be returned in the sense of another form. It will be returned in the sense of formlessness. This is why a fundamental uh, hearts, the, the fundamental heart suture in Buddhism says, form is no other than emptiness emptiness is no other than form 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 is no other than the empty boundless nature of reality the membrane or cloth or ocean and the ocean or cloth or membrane is no other than its manifestation in various transient temporal forms Hmm. The, the 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 dog's form perishes, but the dog dog's essence, you might say, does not perish. It's not a single essence; it's the essence of all reality. It it cannot perish, mm-hmm. based on this understanding. So the the the, the
3: the the
1: the the result of a non-dual understanding is. Abiding peace with all that is, and with anything that arises, and with anything that perishes. Mm-hmm. I cease to identify myself with anything perishable, with anything that can come and go, with anything subject to the perturbations and ravages of time. Mm-hmm. That you might say is the essence of mysticism. Mm -hmm.
2: Hmm?
1: And you can see how far apart what I just discussed or described is from our present modern world picture.
0: Mm -hmm. Very far apart. Mm -hmm. And the downstream effects, are, we're seeing them so obviously today, and we can only imagine the downstream effects of peace.
1: Yes, uh, that's it, it, right. And we shouldn't. Yes, it, 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 exactly. It's the, the peace that the Bible says surpasses all understanding, mm-hmm. if you will. And imagine also that it wouldn't just be peace. It would also provide there were sufficient practices and ethics. There would to be loving kindness and compassion and uh, what in Buddhism is called uh, sympathetic joy, that is joy expressed on behalf of well-being, good news of another. Uh So in lieu of envy, there would be sympathetic joy.
0: Yeah. Compersion.
1: Yes.
2: Yes. mm -hmm, Yes.
0: This is an interesting point because um, my experience with Black Lives Matter my experience with the social unrest was quite problematic for me I felt guilt that I didn't want to go along with it I felt like guilt was the main motivating emotion in the movement that you should be guilty. You should feel sympathy and guilt. And that should motivate your opinion. And I just, there was this, there's this Mother Teresa quote that I. You know, that she was asked to go to an anti-war rally and she declined. And she says, if you make a peace rally, I'll go to that. Um, and I, you know, in the world that we see right now, we, we are facing myriad plights there's so much suffering there's so many things that we're doing that are unsustainable the car is careening off of the edge you know and one wheel goes over the edge on any given day and we can see that the wheel is off of the edge and you know Mm -hmm. somehow we're still skidding along this path but the call for peace hasn't come we're still in this humanistic physical secular solving yeah. it's like a the problem solution paradigm that we're just yeah. stuck in and yeah. i there's something that's missing there there's something like i just it's something like my even my body just doesn't respond to this idea of problem solution especially politically especially politically
1: yes it reminds me of two different, um, two two different but related things. One, while I don't know John Bravaccio very much, I know that you spoke with him on your podcast, and I think at one point you, you famously said, "I want to rob the culture, you and, steal the uh, culture, steal the culture." Uh, see, I, I don't know. Yeah, steal the culture. Yeah. <laughs> I got the quote wrong. <laughs> it's close. <laughs> and, I, and in in conversation with Guy Sengstock, with whom I've spoken a few, a few times. He says something like, I don't want uh, a, a political revolution. I want a spiritual revolution. Yeah. And that's not a quote. It's something close to what he may have said. So I think we need an axial revolution. To use, mm-hmm. you know? So that refers to Carl Jasper's uh, famous thesis about the axial age. We need a second axial, axial yeah. age.
0: Mm-hmm. This is the this is the real revolution that Verveki lays out on the podcast episode here. The the difference between the French Revolution being a political revolution, a social revolution, and the axial revolution being a spiritual, a complete reconsidering of our being, a complete reconsidering of our place in the cosmos.
1: Perfect. Yeah, I I couldn't have said it better. I'm very sympathetic to that view. Hence the reason i began by talking about metaphysics of all things. yeah mm-hmm. metaphysics <laughs> metaphysics in relationship with instagram <laughs> for <Exactly>. example <laughs> um so that's the first remark yes I, I agree that we need a spiritual revolution before we need uh ontologically speaking and logically speaking before we have a political revolution yeah so the the, the second remark actually brings me to someone that i listened to some years ago his name is michael hart and he's a would be considered a post-Marxist. He was along with, with uh, Antonio Negre, wrote books that, that went back when I was in graduate school, were quite popular. One was called Empire. And I went to a talk, given off the cuff, and I think the talk was called Love as a Political Concept. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't expect that necessarily uh, from someone in certain Marxist camps. And bear in mind that Black Lives Matter will obviously have some, some Marxist leanings you wouldn't expect that you would expect class struggle or in this case, race struggle, mm-hmm. right? You would, you would expect the proposition that from the communist manifesto that all history hitherto is the history of class struggle, the perpetuator and the, the, the oppressors and the oppressed. That's almost a direct quote from the, from, from the communist manifesto. Yeah. That's what you would expect. Right. So we've, we've, and, and so you would, you would start to feel, Based on that particular conception of picture, what Nietzsche called ressentiment, in the sense that resentment is certainly one of the driving forces.
0: Resentiment is that—that's what's the translation of that? Resentment of the world.
1: Nietzsche's could yes, it would be resentment. But Nietzsche's point in the Geology of Morals, where he he uses this French term, is that there. Is a class of people that resents what the class in power has. Uh-huh. As a consequence, what it does is fascinating in that it's involved in a transvaluation of values. So, before, and this would take a while to describe, before, uh, what is aristocratic is good. What is noble is good, according to the aristocratic ethos what the, what he calls a slave revolt of morality does is it fundamentally steals and swaps values such that the the impoverished among us are the best. The Uh lowest, lowest among us are the best. Uh The meek, the meek and humble, they shall inherit the earth. It's a complete, you know, we can agree or disagree with it. The moment we just analyze it and see that, wow, it's true that what seems to be the worst is the best. What seems to be the best is the worst. Mm. So what seems to be the worst is to be a victim. But actually, according to a particular worldview, that's the best. Yeah. To be the most yes. victimized is to be in the most morally superior position. So. Yes. Yes. So contrast love as a political concept with resentment and guilt that operates yes. in some of these political contexts. Yes. I've heard people tell me that there there were a number of, I guess we call them white people today, white people apologizing to their black friends. And that was a a kind of a very strange ritual, a form of confession during the early days of the protest after the death, the untimely, unfortunate, and terrible death of of George Floyd. This is, you know, from the point of view that I'm taking, a, a fundamental change in our spiritual understanding of ourselves in the world would necessitate that peace and love and loving-kindness would be animating forces.
0: -hmm: They're not.
1: They're not at present.
0: No. no, they're not. The animating forces right now, as you put it, resentment, mm-hmm. rage, anger, guilt, shame. These are really, really, really low, really scary
2: mm-hmm.
0: animating forces. I can, I, in the beginning, I was plagued with guilt, but as I came to see even just my somatic response, that mm-hmm. was like, no, do not align yourself with rage. Do not align yourself with anger, hatred, resentment. No, can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah.
1: There. Remember what Jesus says. He, he he gives all these paradoxes. His teaching is very paradoxical. He says if, if someone strikes your left cheek, turn and give him the right one. Right? Mm-hmm. turn the other cheek. I, I'm not a biblical scholar, so I'm going to just interpret it in a very uh, jazzy, improvisational way. I think what Jesus is saying is don't let it's a himsa. Don't let violence beget violence. Yeah. In your, in either either in your heart or in your actions. And and furthermore, this is the part that's really quite improvisational. If if it is time to act, then act in a way that is that is not out of violence whatsoever. So act improvisationally. Act in a way that is not based on the same principle. Yes, that was From offered the, before. Exactly, yeah.
0: exactly. This is so beautiful. I want to. I just want to take a moment to have some political commentary based on this notion. I think that right now, all right, I guess it's a couple of things. What you're saying that the the what used to be the worst is now the best. There is this desire right now in our current worldview where we have the one percenters, we have this lizard elite, and which that myth represents something that is deeply true and is deeply problematic. But essentially, what is being called for right now is that we out those people and that the the underclass swaps into power into um elitism it's basically like hey no we actually instead of saying we want to equalize we actually just want to flip the power structure on its head and we actually want the low to actually become the people who have the power instead of uh, analyzing power dynamics for what they are mm-hmm. um i have made an analogy for a long time that says i think you're always better off aiming for the bullseye you don't want to push off of what you know is wrong mm-hmm. by pushing off what you know is wrong you can often find yourself just on the far side of the bullseye the um, equally wrong but in the opposite direction mm-hmm. and i especially through conversations like what i had with Verveki outlining what is the real revolution, the question that I want to ask my friends here is, imagine there's nothing to fight against. Imagine that there's no current oppressor. Imagine that there's no problems in the world. Imagine that all you have to do is think, speak, feel, act, embody what is good and right, then what does that look like? Because there is a confusion right now that is, which war do I fight here? And from the landscape that we have created, the amount of different wars that you could take up arms against is just absolutely infinitesimal it is it, or it is infinite there are so many different wars that you could fight in right now whether they're race, class political gender um, there are so many oppressors there are so many victims and I see one of the one of the big problems with my peers is that we get sucked into fighting the wars. We get sucked into pushing off of someone else's aim and ending up somewhere else on the target. That is not the bullseye because we can't delineate what is the bullseye. And -hmm. I feel like what you're, you know, we're kind of swirling around this idea of love as a political, um,
1: force force. Yes. Let's just imagine for the moment that um, every claim made on behalf of, we won't define these terms on behalf of justice and equality were right now realized. Let's imagine that were the case. Let's imagine it was completely equal human world for this is under the aegis of humanism let's imagine that justice reigned supreme. Okay. So now the the kind of the leftist program of the 20th century has been fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Herein lies the rub. Once you've gotten everything that you've wanted, can you turn around and now see that nihilism or the problem of the presumed meaningless of life is now staring you in the face. In other words, even if it were true that all the claims made on behalf of fairness and equality and justice were fulfilled, it would only then become starkly clear to people that they're not entirely sure what's worth living for. Mm. Because what's worth living for for the longest time has been a particular political understanding
0: yeah which sounds crazy
1: well it's strange because you know that there are countries in which the basic needs are met Uh, let's just i'm I'm going a little bit to the side here but let's take finland or sweden there are countries where the material needs are met so we're not yet talking about justice and equality but certainly we're talking about the distribution of resources well enough And yet you do see suicide rates being fairly high. How can that be? Well, I mean, we can, if we set aside psychology for a moment and return to philosophy, it would be that people start to realize, some start to realize that there's nothing worth living for. That may be a hasty conclusion, but it's certainly proffered by modern Western culture. So the, the point of this thought experiment is to illustrate something fundamentally important, namely, if a particular political movement gets all at once, and I'm not suggesting that, that, that justice isn't an important good, I think it is, still the metaphysical questions will be there, knocking on the door. In fact, they'll start to knock on the door. Um, if you've ever been to a meditation retreat, you'll find that certain things start knocking on the door, so to speak just because the ordinary forms of suffering have diminished. And so you now start to realize that something deeper has been afoot for quite some time.
0: I feel like there's a parallel in my own life. Mm -hmm. That is my craving for more and more and more experience. I have these dreams. I'm a... Paraglide pilot, I can fly, you know, a hundred miles in a single flight, which is, as far as human experience goes, just absolutely, totally surreal. Like it's, I have to block out 99% of the experience just to be able to do it. It's so stimulating and surreal. And I find myself, I, I mean, I feel like, luckily, I have seen in myself the craving in
1: a way for, that I did... The craving for...
0: More of these experiences. Huh? More of the experiences, bigger experiences, certain ones, right? The parallel that I see is that the current leftist paradigm essentially gives meaning to their life through these different wars that they can fight for social justice. Mm-hmm. That is the meaning. And then the moment that Andrew snaps his fingers and says, all of those problems are solved, then all those people then walk around having to face the reality that they were deriving meaning from that and now they have to find something else to derive meaning from and inevitably a large portion of those will end up failing to do so and killing themselves right yesterday on the podcast i had a long conversation with a good friend of mine who's a base jumper and we talked extensively about suicide he has seen so many suicidal people put down the guns and pick up parachutes and become base jumpers and metaphorically live out this killing themselves and then pulling a parachute over and over and over. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my talks with Enriquez and Verveke talking about the tsunami of mental health and the inevitable tsunami of suicide that we're staring down the barrel of,
3: Yes, I and mean, we it's,
1: think of um, Camus. I, I like to misquote. I get it close, but <laughs> <this is> a, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm good at misquoting. I'm an excellent misquoter. Great. <laughs> so C- C- Camus once said something like the following. <laughs> "The only Camus. Genuine. Camus, yeah, the, the, the French existentialist. Yeah. This is, I think, a great quote from the myth, a Sisyphus, the myth of Sisyphus the only genuine philosophical problem is that of suicide. And that's absolutely right. Because oh, this is,
0: the, this is what I was trying to quote yesterday when I said the mm-hmm. only serious question is whether or not to kill yourself.
1: Yes, it's, we, we both are misquoting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Perfectly. Uh, yes. and, and is, Camus, is this
1: C-A-M-U-S? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Camus, Alberta. Camus. Yeah, that's Camas. right. We're back in the south. That's right. Yeah. We've been oh, perfect. We've
0: been misquoting the same guy. Right,
1: exactly. <laughs> right on.
0: Yeah, which is a really strange inquiry, and a really like I fucking cried on the podcast yesterday. Just like this conversation oh. is so incredibly profound, and the realization that when people go to the edge the, the essence of the conversation was essentially Matt is bringing forth this idea, this concept that says if you are going to go to the bridge to kill yourself at least let me go with you at least tell me what you're thinking at least tell me what you found out like I gotta know before you go instead of please don't do it, please don't do it please don't do it, don't die, don't die, don't die of course And this realization that when people go to the edge, they, for the first time in their lives, actually get to choose whether they live or not. Mm -hmm. And when they come back from that edge, is the first time they've actually chosen to be here. Because we don't get to choose that. We we are enslaved by existence before we make that decision, in a way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So the seriousness of the question of whether or not to kill yourself and how absolutely blocked that is from our collective awareness, like we repress that dark thought so, so, so far, we repress that dark thought so, so, so far.
1: seems from a philosophical point of view it seems like the, really like one of the first questions to ask <laughs> <laughs> and it's not because one necess- one shouldn't beg the question one should ask it completely in earnest so one shouldn't say why not kill myself that's not the way i ask the question it's right you ask it agnostically what is it about life that's worth living for? And if there isn't anything about life worth living for, then perhaps I can consider suicide. But what the person, I think if, if the person goes to the edge of the bridge and if this person were very philosophical, what he might be saying is so far I've investigated the matter. I doubt this is actually the case in, in many cases, but so far I've investigated the matter of what, what is worth fundamentally living for. And I can't find, anything really worth living for. And I noticed I'm living in nihilistic culture Mm -hmm. and all the answers proffered in my culture, such as um, experience more pleasure, um, have a bourgeois conception of privatized love, uh, have have pleasure through friendships, uh, accrue experiences or mass experiences and so forth. None of these are doing it for me. I can see through them. Mm-hmm. I can see that none of them are actually ultimately satisfactory. This is a beautiful realization because it's the beginning of what I tend to call seeking. So the conclusion is not therefore kill myself. The conclusion, the conclusion is, oh, I need to open myself up to the to the very possibility that, as Socrates says, I do not know, except insofar as I know that these are not reasons for living. Mm-hmm. That is what, that's what brought me more or less to, and I'm not suggesting others would come here, but that's what brought me to non-duality or to Buddhism or to, like, to the Vedanta or to the other traditions because they begin to suggest that it's a beautiful question to ask and that the only reasonable answer, so I think I might not say the same thing as Ravaki says here, the only reasonable answer, I think, is that one would need to be put in touch with a greater abiding reality. So I define meaning in the following way. Meaning simply means being fundamentally in touch with a greater
3: abiding reality.
1: So that's consistently what I said before, not only are you in touch with the, the fabric of reality, you are the fabric of reality, mm-hmm. but as of yet, I'm not really weighing in on, I I, want, I would like someone just to inquire into that. Wait a minute. If, if that's what meaning really is. And I felt as if a, the things around me are not meaningful and b as if I'm insulated within this skin, as if I'm insulated within this circle of consciousness, could it be possible that there is such graceful contact or actually being in touch with some greater reality? Hmm. That's the inquiry. That's really where it begins. It doesn't begin by throwing oneself off the bridge. It doesn't begin just by turning back and saying, I'm not going to do it it begins when one realizes that one has yet to investigate things deeply enough and therefore the questions fresh open genuine yes. questions start to abound
0: mhm mhm i feel like this is this is the beautiful answer to the first question you asked me of why i do what i do
3: yes
0: this is the beautiful part of it. I have made the meaning in my life through these kinds of experiences. Like on one hand, I call them experiences, but there's also like the meaningful part of it is the inquiry that comes from it. The, the, it's like experiencing the void. It's like touching it. It's about, it's like the things that I don't know, the things I can't control. And the experience with reality—it's mm-hmm. like
1: yes, it, it, there's there's a reason why one could be very charitable and say there's a reason. I almost wrote an article many years ago on free soloing and high ball athletes, and I was hoping that I would. I kind of had a, a hypothesis, and it wasn't really confirmed because too many of them were thrill seeking but my hypothesis is that it actually is a ritual whose point and purpose is, is, is uh, actually transcendence of the physical form, temporary transcendence mm. of the physical form.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: But there's something that it's like, something that it's like to be more ensconced in the, in, 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 in what I've been calling loosely reality. Yes. So this is why, uh, there are a number of these what happens though is there's an attribution error we and i don't want to <laughs> ruin your life here but the attribution error is to think that i need to do paragliding or free souling or whatever because it is precisely the best or only vehicle yep. for bringing mm. me in, into contact with a greater reality of that's course. The, yeah that's the mistake then the vehicle starts to become fetishized yes rather I'm than glad. the actual opening into the greater reality
0: yeah and this was disrupted in my life last year in August when someone at my local paragliding site uh, died and I was the first responder and spent an hour giving CPR to what was a body. Mm-hmm. And then four weeks later on a paragliding trip, my best friend crashed into the top of a mountain, I carried him down on my back for four and a half hours. Mm-hmm. And this was the disruptive pair of events that really Brought into question this, the difference between meaning making and thrill seeking, the difference between meaning with these things and just meaning in general. Like, was are these the only vehicles? Right, I've my entire life has been doing what are some of the world's most dangerous activities, and
1: um, yes. And it's how old are you now? Thirty-one. Okay, well, it'd be wise to consider these questions now because. Otherwise, if you're around in 10 or 15 years and you can no longer paraglide in the same way or at the same level or whatever, you will find yourself in the midst of a genuine existential crisis. Of course. Of course. course. I mean, this is what happens with a number of professional athletes after they've concluded playing. Yeah. A number of them go to surgered activities that are not sufficiently interesting yeah. They might start businesses or become entrepreneurs. Yeah. These are unfortunate because they've missed the opening. They've missed the existential yeah. opening. But yeah. my my joke I'm is trying not to miss little, it. I'm trying. Yeah, we to might to as well it. we might as well start now. Right. Yeah. So I like the joke that philosophy is. I like one-liners when it comes to philosophy. Philosophy is what helps us to avoid disaster. Mm. Contemplate matters now, and you don't have to deal with the disaster. Otherwise, would be your fate. 10 15 years
0: hence yeah no kidding no kidding the other thing that you said that sparked a thought mm-hmm. in my mind was the notion that free soloing is a means to transcend mm-hmm. and i have free soloed um, multi-pitch rock climbs as well as free soloed a number of high lines mm-hmm. and when I think about paragliding in the mountains, that it is very much a free solo activity as well. The, mm-hmm. um, And there is a element of thrill-seeking. And I can also, I think that the rock climbing and the highlining, I don't think I ever transcended anything past The thrill seeking, the novelty, the fear, the Mm -hmm. such visceral experience as to, you know, there's this one climb that I've done a number of times free solo and it's like, it's a crack. It's like a five, eight crack and you just like, you're in the crack. And then there's this one move that it becomes like five, nine or a little bit more if you stay in the crack, but it's still like a five, seven. If you just step out on the face, Mm -hmm. there's like these little golf ball holds. Mm -hmm. but it just puts you out in the void. Mm -hmm. And the thrill of that is just undeniable. It's just Mm -hmm. undeniable, incredible experience. And, but there is this transcendence that I've felt in paragliding that I lose my, I don't know. I, I lose most everything about my identity and, it is so enrapturing to take what is an invisible medium, like the way that the earth's atmosphere breathes vertically and horizontally, and to try to map my own understanding and experience and observation predictions onto that. It's
1: completely a Taoist understanding. That would be a proper sense of what resonance is. Resonance is the... Getting in flow with the vibratory patterns of being. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, you, this is why I think there's actually good experiential evidence for something like non-duality. Let's suppose you think that I am the body, or I am the the finite mind. And if you ask yourself, what is the body in your own direct experience? It would be physical sensations. So you don't have to go on a ten-day vipassana retreat huh. to realize that. So your actual experience right now, if you if you Drew your attention to the so-called physical body is is just of physical sensations lighting up here and there, right? pops, sizzles, crackles, and so forth. Okay, so the physical body actually can be reducible to physical sensations. Next, what is the mind? Well, the mind is reducible to thoughts and feelings. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing as a container of the mind or an experience. There's just the arising and passing away of thought and the arising and passing away of feeling and so on. Well, we can ask ourselves one more question. Well, what what more is there in our actual phenomenological experience? And that would be perception, visual, auditory, and so forth. Now, what happens? Transcendence is a very simple word to define here. It just means that the identification with I am the sensation, I am, I am the thought, I am the feeling, I am the perception, dissolves. In this case, temporarily, mm. such that there's just there's just flowing, non-egoic, mm. non-centered uh, experiencing. So Taoists would say, and I love Taoism. Taoists would say there's just the flowing along with the way of things. There's just complete. That's what I was calling resonance. There's a complete resonance insofar as there's no resistance between what we ordinarily call the physical form and everything else. They're so in tune, so in stride, so in sync, so, so vibrating, the same frequency, that there appears for a time to be no difference whatsoever. This is what we admire when we admire gliders. I'm referring to hawks and such, or buzzards. There's something we call that graceful. Your gracefulness is just the amazing way in which it seems as if the bird dissolves in the the current the air currents such that there's really no difference between the bird and the air currents there's just flowing floating movement if we understand that more deeply we just call that enlightenment if we understand that temporarily right, we just call that Um, perhaps a momentary mystical or spiritual experience. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Would you, what about a, like a flow state experience?
1: The reason I'm, the reason I'm kind of in a minority here about flow state, I think it's misdescribed in physicalist terms. It's, it's, it, it presumes that there is, uh, that the brain is identical with the mind and that allegedly the flow state is occurring, quote unquote, inside the head. That's my objection. I think if you want to change the way you define flow state, then I would say if a flow state is a temporary dissolution of the sense of a separate self. Uh-huh. Then I'm probably happy with that definition. Hmm. Remember, I'm obviously an ontologist or metaphysician of sorts. I care about the nature of reality. And I don't think we're going to, to get beyond our own constitutive shortcomings with respect to our worldview until it's the case that we face up to, for example, physicalist assumptions. Yeah. This is where Sam Harris and I disagree. I don't think that meditation has to do with rewiring the brain or with certain brain states. Though I think brain states are going to be correlated with our uh, phenomenological experience. I think rather we should be talking about the nature of reality and about how it's possible to lose ourselves, lose our sense of egoic selves
3: within the flow of reality.
1: So that's what was interesting to me about the story I never wrote. <laughs> it, it was, I was just trying to see whether or not certain things could become temporary but not necessary vehicles for what I'm describing here.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And you're right, thrill-seeking isn't sufficient because it presupposes to that there is this finite body-mind that's staking itself in a life-and-death situation. That's a little bit like Mortal combat. We're talking here about the, the gliding bird that completely loses its sense of differentiation between it and the air currents and the
3: ether.
2: Yeah.
1: Emerson calls, calls it a transparent eyeball. There are various poets who have spoken about these things very nicely.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. In paragliding, it's almost like you lose the sense, you lose the sense that you can do it. Like that, I can fly the glider in the right way. And you just it's almost like uh you start hoping that <laughs> it's funny to say it. Yeah. It's almost like in in Highlining, so like I've walked across some really, really long highlines. Uh, last year we did a two-kilometer long Highline in Canada, and the whole time I'm basically trying to manage all of my expectations, my fear, my physical body, all of these things in hopes that I can do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I know it's possible and I hope that I can do it. Yes. And that is a flow state that I can dissolve into where Mm -hmm. the rhythm of my steps, the rhythm of my breath can like, I can get lost in that. Mm -hmm. In paragliding instead of thinking about I can do it, it almost becomes a hope that it is like that the air will just work. Like we say that it's working. Like that's mm-hmm. what, that's the term that we use. Yeah. It's working. Like you can launch now cause it's working mm-hmm. and it's like, You know, it's like, I'm just hoping that the thing that I can let myself become a part of is the thing that takes me over there.
2: Perfect. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes.
1: Exactly. Tao Te Ching says, uh, the Taoist sage creates without possessing and then forgets it. But maybe we could restate that a little bit the Tao the there is creating or creating happens. Let's make it really weird. Creating just happens. There's no one there to take credit for it. And there's no one there to remember or forget it. So to say something like that, right? mm. Ms. Argadatta says, uh, nothing happens to me. Everything just happens. So uh-huh. I'm trying to give you some quotes that right? things are just happening. Yes. There, there's not a center There's an executive function that seems to stand outside of it and says, do this, don't do that. Uh I must do this. I have to get there.
0: Yeah, Yeah. paragliding paragliding provides a particularly salient exercise in this because the things that we're talking about are invisible. Mm -hmm. We cannot cannot perceive them with our most used sensory organ. Mm which brings you into a really, I don't know, it's like a, it's a, it's a very humbling thing.
1: Yes, exactly. It, it's beautifully put. That's precisely what would be part of moving us beyond our current modern metaphysical paradigm. Humility, reverence. I and mean, we don't even need to define these words, I'm, I'm just pointing at something. Right. The humility reverence comes from the very deep intuition that whatever we call hang gliding rests upon everything we
3: don't call hang gliding.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. The, 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 the entire movements of things seen and above all unseen are precisely what allow for the hang gliding to quote work. tandem with them yes Mm
2: -hmm. yes
1: that is a precisely not a humanist position it's not the case that man is a measurable thing that everything else is the measure of man Mm.
0: yeah i have this uh, over and over i have this experience when i'm paragliding that i'm just like dumbfounded that it works i'm like i just can't believe it works like
1: Beautiful. I, can't. I mean, yeah. I mean, you're capturing, you are just trying to find ways of capturing what I would describe as a, the alternative to the, the world feels from your before would be one of mystery. I'm using the word mystery as a, as a clue to a fundamentally different way of thinking and being. So there's something rather mysterious. I can't believe it works. It always, or I mean, not always, but it often enough works, but I can't believe it doesn't. And maybe I might, appeal to physics and that would be fine but somehow i would still find that physics is not sufficient to capture the non-egoic experience yeah. occurring here and now yeah. somehow it works or, yes. or we say i can't believe what i'm seeing or i can't believe what i'm feeling if we have to yes. put it in I statements yes i can't believe that just happened Yes. Well, that's not literally true, right? It's it's just it's just a way of re- realizing that your current understandings are completely inadequate for what actually occurred.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: That's mystery.
0: That is. Yeah, and I think it's important in these experiences. It's becoming more important to me in these experiences to try to recognize the things that I am wholly unable to take in like that. Like I said, you know, I fly a hundred miles and I land. And the first thing I say to my friend is like, I can't believe how much we have to block out to do that. Shit. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Like we have to take the atmosphere, which is unfathomably complex. Like, mm-hmm. what is happening between the sun and the earth and the atmosphere that m- makes these things that we call thermals mm-hmm. is we cannot, we can, we can like not comprehend it in any way that resembles its true complexity, its true nature. And we have to take it and we basically put that. Thing, that complex entity that is the atmosphere, and we basically boil it down to some kind of 8 bit Atari video game that we can then operate our little
2: mm-hmm.
0: object
1: inside of. Exactly. So the proper response is it is utterly unfathomable. I cannot fathom it, mm-hmm. it is completely marvelous. So I'm obviously using some what used to be called religious language to try to point us toward a thicker, better understanding of the kinds of experiences that may lead us out of the short, the the, the myopic world picture that we've been evolved in.
0: Yes. And this is something that I have a deep desire to, do in myself and to help other people do. It is literally like this article that is yet written, this video that's yet filmed about paragliding as practice, like how we can transform our lives, our meaning, our ability to conceptualize, our ability to ruminate, our ability to be humble and reverent and present and grateful and to create meaning.
1: Perfect. I like the alchemists here. In, um, in a book called The Reenchantment of the World by Max Berman, he, he actually devotes a lot of pages to medieval alchemy. And there's just one bit that stands out here that's important for our purposes today. This is that set aside the kinds of experience, experiments they performed, or set aside their mistaken understandings of how reality seemed to work. What was important to alchemists was that the experiment itself or the practice itself was at the same time, a practice meant to transform the one involved in the experiment. Uh
2: Uh
1: It's in this sense that he distinguishes it from modern science. The scientist is not transformed by the lab experiments, nor, nor is he or she meant to be. So we should actually think about any fundamental practice we're involved in as not just about it, paragliding or whatever, but actually about what is happening to the one involved in it. So you could say about philosophy in the proper sense, philosophy is a transformation of our way of being in the world, such that anything we inquire into, a what, is also at the same time a deepening and unfolding of the one inquiring. To inquire into the nature of courage is also at the same time to learn to be courageous. Etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, right? Or, or or to to try to provide a perspicuous uh, description, a thick description of, of what hang gliding or perilating rather is really like is also at the same time to open oneself up to possibility that it is transformative of our way of seeing and of being.
2: Mm.
1: It's just not gonna be interesting in a few years to think about flying 125 miles, right? That is a a, a fool's errand. Then it's 150 or 175 or higher Mm. or lower or whatever. Yep it's it's a's it's a structurally flawed approach
0: it is i 've been seeing it so clearly lately, and it is uh, has been epitomized by my desire to fly a new class of glider, which uh, you could essentially just call it the race class they 're very fast they 're very wide and they 're very skinny and they go really really well they have more performance, but they 're inherently more dangerous yeah. and i am a expert pilot and I know that I can totally fly these things and but I've also been reluctant to do it and I've been very weary of my motivations to do it and have recently yeah I was on launch the other day um, in southern Oregon and there was a woman who was just camped out on on the launch on the top of the mountain and she asked me what is the ultimate thrill like where does it end which you know, it was a pretty profound question to ask someone four minutes into meeting them. And especially uh, was uh, so salient in what I had been ruminating on in my own life. Yes. And I told her that I thought that maybe I had kind of come to the conclusion that I should try harder to be absolutely present with the surreal experiences that I'm having. And, Try harder to embody the joy and the meaning that I extract from those experiences rather than seeking ways that I can get more and more experience. There's your eight and a half year old. Yeah, there's the eight and a half year old. Give me 90 <laughs> seconds, Andrew. Sure. Andrew. Yes. Buddy. Hey, how's it going Good. Sorry about that. It's okay. What is your uh what's your time like this morning?
1: I think I should probably wrap up here pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yes, let's do that. Um there's so much to wrap up. Holy shit. This whole thing is just uh yeah. It's so wonderful. I really appreciate it. And, um I'm, I'm amazed by you. Honestly, I, uh, I think you have a very, a very nice perspective, and I feel like there's a, so many things that I've been wondering about in myself, and especially as they regard to my how I create meaning in paragliding. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly salient topic for me right now. And I have a deep desire to help other people do it as well because myopically in this sport, I've helped a number of people learn. I've guided tours internationally as people, you know, want to start traveling with their paragliders. And there is this this angst, there is this FOMO, there is this feeling that I want more and I can't get it and I'm frustrated with the sky and I'm frustrated with myself and I want a faster glider. That's all I need. I just need a faster glider. I just need a better glider. And I feel it in myself sometimes, but I'm also getting better at landing out. I'm getting better at soothing myself when I put on two puffy coats in July and I launch off a mountain and eight minutes later, I'm at the landing. And I wanted to be in the sky for eight hours. And so I'm getting better at this, but I'm still, it's such a process. And I have a deep desire to help other people transform themselves through paragliding because I feel like I have been, I have been transformed by these experiences. Like I find myself these days, like crying in my paraglider and landing my paraglider and just being incredibly reverent and grateful that the sky treats me with such um, grace and invites me and sets me down softly. And I have been landing and, and putting my hands on my heart and crying when I land, it's like my, the thing is changing, but there's still a part of me that wants to have big flights, you know? And so I'm trying to,
1: It's it's, you have all you need right there. There's the the lesson is that of discernment discern when there's the extraordinarily endless experience of hunger, Mm -hmm. and you know what that's like, and when there is reverence, and peace, and openness, and humility ingratitude gratitude, and just taste, taste the different phenomena. The first one tastes feverish and mm-hmm. continues to be unsatisfactory, while the second one feels full. Yeah. Right? There's a beautiful line. I think it's from the Bible, like, cup runneth over. Yeah. It feels like that. That's the difference. You might say that growing up really does mark out the difference between the former and the latter. Yeah. So what we need is for individuals to grow up in this fashion. And we also need a culture to grow up. Yeah. The experience you're describing personally is the experience of a culture also hungering insatiably. What if it could actually learn
3: peace Gratitude, genuine humility,
0: yeah. openness, and the like. Yes, the things that are so much more nourishing. The difference between a Skittle, eating Skittles that give you this spike and something that's actually more sustainable.
1: It's, yes, and it's not just that the, the former is not sustainable and the latter is. It's that the, the latter is inherently sustainable. It, The fundamental nature of love of all, for example, is itself sustainable. There is no outside or other. It has no lack. It is complete fullness. As such, there is just no sense in which it could be wanting or incomplete. So they the really the key to meaning in life is to be with whatever it is that is fully complete. Hmm. It's the something brain. to contemplate, right? Yes. Because if you, if you, if you actually contemplate the meaning of what I just said, it will take you far. It will take anyone who contemplates it very far.
0: Yes. Yes. Yesterday when I was talking to my friend, the same friend who asked, why are we so afraid of death? I asked him what he thought the word wholesomeness means.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. And I think you're right that just in that there is so much to consider. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the threads of this conversation is the liberation that comes from
1: considering. Definitely. Yes. It's earnest considering. Mm-hmm. Earnest are, the sargadatta says the great indians asian sargadatta says what you really need is earnestness you need earnestness and the capacity to inquire put those together you need to come to earnest considerateness or earnest inquiry that will take one as far as one needs to go in fact that will take one so to speak home
0: which is a stark difference from the the model of physical objectivism that has categorized like a science you know we have we the the earnestness is not always guaranteed in conjunction with the consideration with the inquiry and mm-hmm. the earnestness is so important there
3: Yes. If, if,
1: if anyone listening comes to feel in his or her own heart as if he or she's been living in exile, then there's every reason to earnestly consider what it would really mean to come home. We don't need to know what that means. We just need to open ourselves up to the inquiry.
0: It's a long process. I think I was disillusioned for a long time as to the rate at which that might happen.
1: I wouldn't take the question there. It appears as if let's what usually when I say something like that, usually people will say it's hard or it's difficult or it's a long road. That's a presumption. You really don't know how long it will be. Life moves and fits it starts. I didn't know that the death of my sister would only a few years later lead me to uh, an immense depth when it comes to my explorations. I would say that's pretty quick, but it seems to me that quick or slow or long road or short road only makes sense relative to a hungry desire to get somewhere. Yeah. So probably. as Ram Dass famously says, be here now. Mm-hmm. Be, I can, since we're riffing on the theme of love at the end of our conversation, say, be home now. Mm-hmm. When you're paragliding your home in the right spirit, when you're in the right spirit paragliding at your home. Yeah. There's no sense of there being a long road or a short road or a difficult process or an easy process. There's, because there's no sense
3: of there being a road or a process. Zen master Dogen says, "Practice and enlightenment
1: are one."
2: It's an
1: extraordinarily concentrated statement. But what if it's right? What if, what if there is a, a mysterious way in which every time someone meditates. There is a taste or flavor or a glint of something that is like enlightenment. Well, who knows what he means? It's a mysterious statement, but could it be true? Could it be that practice enlightenment are one, or that practice and freedom are one, to put it in terms of paragliding?
0: Yeah. I think that's so poignant for what we're all. You know, this encapsulates so many of the different things that we've talked about. The, it's, almost, it's almost like a misidentification as destination.
1: Yes. There's a misidentification of a destination, and there's a misidentification of ourselves as being the doers
2: mm-hmm.
1: traveling along that road. Drop both. Drop the belief that there is a separate out there destination where we have to go and drop the idea that we are doers. We're the ones who have to undertake the journey. Then it's very easy when right? we come back to our Tao sensibility, then it involves simply vibratorily going along with the way of things and we start to adjust so that we can actually resonate with the way of being. Mm -hmm. This conversation is just an example of, of course, the conversation we come to resonate more with one another. Mm -hmm. The beginning begins with two strangers. The ending ends with two people who converge.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, I feel that. I feel like we've definitely gone places that would not have gone without you. Mm-hmm. We have created something.
1: Yes, and vice versa. I went places that I would not have gone without you. There's something that's like to converse that goes beyond whatever it is that you could have done on your own and whatever it is that I could have done on my own. Mm-hmm. And I would call that once again mystery. There's no way in which we can point to what we call the third, we can call it I thou, we can call it the relating, but all of that's added language for precisely what you said before. I, somehow it happened. Somehow, mm-hmm. we, got, somehow we are here. Mm-hmm.
0: It's more fun like that anyway. The mystery. <laughs> Who wants to lose all the mystery in life?
1: No. No, there's
0: magic. There is magic and you never see it unless you believe
1: Yes. Nice. Yeah. I hear you.
0: So good to talk to you, man.
1: Yeah. Great talking to you too.
0: So good to talk to you. Thank you for all your time, man. Two and a half hours a day.
1: Well, you're very welcome. No worries.
0: I would love to do this again at some point in the future.
1: That would be great.
0: Um, There's a lot of thought provoking things in here and there's a lot of things that I will write on, ruminate on, and think about in the future. So I really appreciate that. And I will. I will. I am certain to think of you often here. I'm leaving in two days to go on a week-long paragliding trip with my friends in the mountains. And there's something I've been working on that I've titled The Paragliding Prayer. That is, I'm trying to have some kind of like little short poem that I would read before I launch that would help imbue my experience with the maximum amount of reverence, meaning, humility, and gratitude that the experience could bring me. And so I think this conversation has gone a long way in helping me kind of distill those those ideas as well as concretize the notion that that's important.
1: Beautiful. You're very welcome.
0: Okay, Andrea. I hope you have a great day, my man.
1: All right, you too. Take care.
0: Okay, I love you, buddy. See you. All right. Bye. Okay, you guys. Man, that was a long one, but a good one. Glad you hung in there for that. Thanks so much, Andrew, for coming on and sharing so much of your time with us. If you guys want to see more of Andrew's work, you can go to, let's just make sure I have this right. You can go to askole.com. That's A-S-K-O-L-E. All these links will be in the description below and check out his work. He really is a special person. So I'm sure you know that by now, but yeah, thanks so much, Andrew. You guys stay healthy, stay sane, stay safe. We'll see you on the next episode. Y'all love you. Peace.